What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, journalist and academic Linda Kinsler explores her family's dark history in Latvia, Ukraine and Russia during World War II. And she reflects on whether history is now repeating itself with Russia's current war on Ukraine. Growing up, American journalist Linda Kinsler knew very little about her Latvian grandfather, aside from the fact that his name was Boris. Linda's grandmother in Latvia never heard from her husband again, after he disappeared just weeks on from their wedding in 1949. Amid the fog of battle, Latvia had changed hands throughout the Second World War between the Soviets and the Nazis, and Boris was thought to have had links to the German regime. But when Linda's grandmother started receiving pension checks in his name from the Soviet Security Agency, which would later become the KGB, the story became murkier still. Evidence from an ongoing investigation shows that Boris was part of the Aris Commando, a Latvian police unit that collaborated with the Nazis. He was also close with the Butcher of Riga, Herbert Suckers, a man implicated in the murder of around 30,000 Jews. Linda, today a writer, was prompted by her father to look closer at their family history. Her search has taken her around the world from Latvia to Uruguay, from courts and police stations to bookshops and hotels in an effort to learn the truth about Boris Kinsler. In her new book, Come to This Court and Cry, she documents her family's story and asks how do we account for the atrocities of history and our personal links to them, as the passage of time means they slip further beyond living memory. Our host today is the author, broadcaster and senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute, John Hopkins University, Peter Pomerantsev. Here's Peter with more. Linda, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much for having me. So Linda, one of the most riveting things about your amazing book is that it's a family story. And it turns out that in your family, you have this grandfather, Boris, who you've, who you've never met, who um, might be this monstrous figure guilty of really quite violent, dramatic atrocities against Jews in the Second World War. Can you tell me a little bit more about him, about Boris, and a bit of the sort of historical background around sort of the man that he, he worked with or for, the, the butcher of Riga, Tsukurs? Yeah, so... The thing is, we just we have very few confirmed pieces of factual information. You know, we know that 
he comes from a Latvian family, that he grew up and went to school during Latvia's period of independence in the 30s. We know that he joined a fraternity called Latonia, where it turned out to be a very fateful decision on his part because that is where he met the men that he would then follow into one of the most brutal killing brigades of the Second World War. Specifically, the leader of that brigade was a man named Victor Zareis, who was a jurist. He was studying the law. And he also worked as a policeman, and he was the one who was tasked within the very, very first days of the German occupation of Riga of forming a group of local volunteers with the plan of carrying out pogroms upon the local Jewish population. So we know for a fact that he was part of this group. We also know that a man named Herbert Zuckers was part of this group. Um, Zuckers was a very famous person before World War II. He was called the Latvian Lindbergh. He was a pilot. Everyone recognized his name. They showed movies of his flights and his dispatches were printed in the newspapers. And I say all this not only to suggest that he was very well known, but as a result of that, the Jews that he was rounding up and taking to their deaths recognized his face. And so, you know, there's many testimonies that suggest that members of the RIS commando, you know, participated in roundups in the Riga ghetto. It was a very, very, very unsavory group of people, to say the least. And yeah, after the war, these men met very different fates. And my grandfather, we then learned, began working for the KGB at some point. And then he disappeared in 1949 without a trace. So tell me a bit more about your family background. That's the sort of historical background that your grandfather, Boris, your one of your grandfathers, your paternal grandfather, was implicated in. But what is the rest of your family like? I mean, are they are they also... Are they, are they also Nazis? <laughs> My mother's family are Ukrainian Jews. They came from Kiev and Kharkov. Most of them were evacuated from Kharkov to Kazakhstan in advance of the German occupation of Ukraine, but some of them didn't make it out. A couple of her relatives were killed um, at Babinyar, which is the largest Holocaust mass grave in Eastern Europe. My parents both met in Riga. My mother's family moved to Riga after the war, and that's where my parents met. And of course, you know, at the time, it wasn't very common for a Jewish family and a Latvian family to be united by marriage, but that's what happened. And the result is this strange inheritance I have of victims on one side and perpetrators on the other. And so a lot of the book is me trying to figure out what exactly I have inherited. And you're talking about this, you know, in a very, in a very sort of professional way as a, an academic and an author. But um, you grew up knowing about your Jewish heritage. What was it like discovering that you have heritage from the side of the perpetrators and not just of the victims in this history? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's hard to obviously describe what that feeling was like. I was, you know, I was much younger and I was kind of just like starting out my career and I thought, you know, it's just one of those things that you cannot put into words, you know, this kind of this stain, you know, and I think that the writer Maria Chimarkin, who I do reference in the book, she puts it so beautifully in a way that I could never do. And she says, it's like realizing that there's a criminal's mark burned onto your family's skin. And it's like that stain that you kind of carry and that you have to own. It's kind of cheesy, but growing up because I went to Jewish day school, you know, and the thing that you were always taught was justice, justice, you shall pursue, of course. And so I started doing my research. I thought, okay, well, I don't know how to metabolize this information. The way I know how to think 
is to try to find out what I can to kind of turn it into an investigative project for myself. And so for better or for worse, that's what I ended up doing. Before we get into the sort of the, the research journey, what has that emotional journey been like? Where have you ended up? Are you now judging yourself as one bit of your of your heritage sitting in judgment on the other half? I mean, maybe. I don't know. I think what I've uncovered is just how tangled the connections between victims and perpetrators are in this particular part of the world. You know, this is a place that was subjected to sequential occupation, sequential waves of terror, where so much of the population was deported or disappeared, and then a different part of the population was deported and disappeared and murdered. It's hard to think about, it taught me not to think about victims and perpetrators in binary terms. You know, I think that's one of the complications about anything to do with this part of the world, with Eastern Europe, with these tangled histories. And it also kind of helps us understand a little bit about how humans, our you know, relatives, my relatives could live through these things and could get up every day and could be contracted into committing some of these crimes. You know, I can't claim that I understand it, but at least I have more of the context that I needed to kind of begin to come to grips with it. That moral urgency uh, informs kind of the the energy behind your book. I mean, it's, it's never a self-indulgent book at all. But what I thought made it so powerful was that you have this incredible investigation this incredible analysis that we'll be getting into about ideas of justice and justice many years hence and what it means. But at the same time, the kind of the almost emotional pacing of your book is just informed by your personal conflict or inner conflict around this and kind of your efforts. You can always feel your effort to stay focused and professional and calm. And it's, it's very hard for me to sort of communicate this, but it just informs the whole book and and your voice in it. And I think what a, one of the many reasons this book is is just so unique is that it has this inner gigantic inner tension just hiding below the surface and like all great writers you don't have to scream about it it's just there and kind of like informs everything but tell me more about your research journey because this is very much a you know it reminded me a little bit of east west street in in the best possible sense in the sense that this is a very much in a, a research adventure book where you start off and then go on this crazy round the world journey into history into archives to south america but where does it start? How did you first learn about the story? And tell me a bit about the journey. And how long did it take? So it began kind of innocently. I mean, I guess as innocent this as this kind of story could begin. I really, I was studying at Cambridge, Eastern European literature, Ukrainian literature at Cambridge. And I was trying to figure out my family history. And I was researching the Ares Commando because I was thinking, okay, what can I actually try to find out? And this was around 2015. And I came across the story of Herbert Sukers. And specifically, I came across some news articles that from 2011, a couple from 2005, more recent, and I, you know, he's, he was murdered in 1965. You don't expect his name to come up in news articles. So I was reading and I discovered that the Latvian prosecutor general's office was conducting a criminal investigation into this guy. And the subject of the criminal investigation was, has he murdered Jews or not? Did he participate in genocide? To me, this was... I was extremely confused, as you can imagine, by the circumstances of this case. And so I tried to find out what I could, and I figured out that they were indeed conducting an investigation into this dead man 
who was murdered by Mossad in 1965. And Mossad, they, after the kind of kidnapping of Adolf Eichmann in 1960, they sent one of the men who was in charge of that mission back to South America to kill Zuckers. And so it seemed to me very strange that a man who had been dead for 40 years would be the subject of an investigation. So then it kind of went from there. And tell me, you, you said they murdered him. And tell us a bit more about the murder, because his corpse is such a plays such a big part in your story. So first of all, I should say it's the only assassination that we know of that has been confirmed um, in which Mossad actually murdered a former Nazi. Of course, you know, we've all heard the stories and the rumors about the other ones, and there undoubtedly were others, but this is the only one that they took credit for many, many decades after the fact. On his body, they left an artifact that I find utterly fascinating, which is the full text of the closing speech at Nuremberg of the chief British prosecutor, Sir Hartley Shawcross, who spoke specifically about the way the Holocaust had been carried out in Eastern Europe. Because I think a lot of people don't understand this, but when Nuremberg was happening, when the International Military Tribunal was being convened, a lot of the evidence they had pertained to what had happened in Ukraine, in Latvia, in Estonia, in Lithuania. That's what they had. And so that's what was presented. And so it makes sense that they left that speech on his body as like this kind of condemnation. And of course, that's also where the book gets its title, because one of his final lines was to tell the judges, imagine that all of humanity is standing before you in this courtroom, and that it comes to this court and cries and says, these are our laws, let them prevail. And to me, when I read that, it just made my heart stop a little for everything that it meant about what they were trying to do when they killed him and what kind of justice they hoped to attain. Tell us a little bit more about the trial. So just so I'm clear as well, and the audience is clear, why was the Latvian prosecutor trying to cause, when he's like generally just known to be a Nazi war criminal, what were they trying to find out? So it's interesting. I mean, it's an odd case. And in the book, I talk a lot about how this could, this kind of posthumous investigation could have come about, because it's not totally uncommon. Through the process of rehabilitation, you do see families asking for their dead relatives to be formally recognized as innocent if they were suppressed by Soviet authorities, for instance, or later after the Soviet Union fell, if they collaborated with Soviet authorities. And so there was one such case about Zuckers. His daughter asked for him to be rehabilitated in 1996, actually. And so the prosecutor had a file, and it was this what they called a sleeping case. It was just kind of open, sitting there, and no one was touching it. And then what happened was there was an art exhibit in Riga called The Presumption of Innocence that focused on Zuckers' story. And the whole point of it was to say, this man was done wrong. He was murdered. He didn't deserve his death. He was innocent. He didn't participate in the Holocaust. All of these kinds of denialist, revisionist claims. And the prosecutor's office sent lawyers to the exhibition and entered everything from the art exhibit into evidence. And from then on, they are obligated to, as the, you know, the prosecutor general's office, they are obligated to look into any allegations of genocide or murder. And so they were conducting this investigation and then it went from there. And they asked for any files from Israel, from Brazil, from England, Germany, 
all of the relevant countries. And then I just went off and did my own thing and followed the files where they took me. And tell me, so how, what's happening in that case? And, and how do you put a ghost on trial, I suppose, is the question. But you, your, your book looks at Tsukos, but w- what was Boris's role in the Tsukos story? Tsukos is the, the famous war criminal, but w- what was the story of your grandfather without giving the whole game away? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think in a case where we have so little... The reason I began looking into Sukers was obviously so much is known about him, um, and also it was a legally fascinating case. But of course, I was curious if my grandfather's name would show up in the evidence files, and lo and behold, of course it does um, in several places because they were part of the same group together. Um, so we know that they must have known each other, that they were in the same place at at least a handful of times, although the interrogation records that we have are a little bit confusing. You know, as with any history, like you're kind of piecing together the fragments and trying to infer what you can and deduce what you can, knowing that, you know, it's so far in history that we can't really know the truth. But my grandfather was there and there's some evidence to suggest that he joined the KGB even while World War II was ongoing. We know that he was working for them after the war and some stories that have been passed down to us suggest that one of his jobs, and this makes sense, was to identify RS commando members, you know, these men that he had been working with while, while they were committing atrocities, that he was supposed to identify them so that Soviet authorities would know who to arrest, interrogate, and ultimately put on trial. And so there's this story that one of his jobs after the war was to walk around Riga with two KGB men on his tail, and then if he saw a man, a man that he knew from his service, he would tap them on the shoulder and, you know, greet him like an old friend, you know, and that's how the two men who are trailing him would know that that's someone that they need to interrogate. That's absolutely amazing. And and tell me more about the sort of the Tsukos case itself. What does it actually mean to, to put a ghost on trial? How did the Tsukos case itself end or is it still ongoing? And what does it mean to sort of exhume history again this way? For me, this is one of the most fascinating questions that I hope the book addresses is that, you know, we're in the moment when a lot of these World War II cases can still be tried in court because of the nature of the atrocities and because many nations don't have specific laws. Like in Germany, for instance, if you participated in the Holocaust, if you worked in a concentration camp, you are tried according to ordinary criminal law. And that can happen at any point. And the case against Sukers was one of these cases, right? It was one of these kind of antiquated cases that nevertheless, because of the way that the law was constructed, has to be investigated. And they've tried to close it many times. And the first time they closed it, they ruled, sorry, there's not enough evidence. Like he's not enough evidence to suggest he was complicit at all. It was kind of um, really striking. It it refused to take into account any of the testimonies of many Holocaust survivors who had located him at the scene of the crime, partly because these had been collected by the Soviets, but in many cases because people were dead and were not around to give their testimony anymore, right? So part of the reason this case fascinates me is this is not the only one of its kind. It's not the only place where some kind of Holocaust revisionism is allowed to take place because there are no more survivors who are living to present themselves to the court to say, this is what I saw. 
So it's a legal problem, I think. And so just to answer your question, so they tried to close it once. And when they did, they issued a decision saying he can't be found guilty. None of the testimonies count, essentially greenlighting him for rehabilitation. And then there was a kind of protest to get from the Jewish community. They found some more evidence. And so they reopened the case, assigned it to a new prosecutor. And as far as I know, it's still open. I don't know if there will ever be a decision. I hope they will. I hope the book helps a decision along. But for, to me, the fact that it's kind of still open, still hanging, kind of in abeyance um, is a really apt metaphor for the difficulties that many, many nations have had with dealing with these kinds of things. The subtitle of your book is rather dramatic. It's like, this is how the Holocaust ends or how the Holocaust ends. Is that what you're talking about? I found it a very sort of intriguing, dramatic subtitle, which I didn't really understand. And I say in the prologue that the subtitle is not a prescription, but rather a warning. And I do mean it that way, because many, many people have been writing and thinking and talking about what happens when this event passes out of memory and what will we do then? What I wanted to say in the book is that we're there and it's happening and we need to kind of shore up what we can before cases like this get too widespread. Um, because it's I've been seeing it not only in Latvia, of course, but you know in several different places in Eastern Europe where we've decided that, and at the time, of course, in the aftermath of these atrocities, it is so important to have trials, to have courts, to have rulings. You know, that is like you need to do that to actually confirm what occurred, to punish the perpetrators. But the fact that these are still ongoing for crimes that were now over 80 years ago, 70 years ago, presents us with an epistemological problem about what we owe to the survivors who gave their testimonies. And, you know, I'm sure many listeners are familiar, but there are many (laughs) innovative approaches to this, such as one that created holograms of Holocaust survivors so that they would be preserved after their death so that they could still interact with children at a museum who want to know what happened to them. So that's one approach. And I guess I'm just trying to figure out how this story ends. The question is, like, what does it mean for us to have reckoned with this past? What does it mean to have a sense of an ending? And in the archive at the Wiener Library, I came across this amazing document from a Holocaust survivor from Riga named Joseph Berman. And he confronted one of the Nazis that he knew from the Riga ghetto in his cell. And the Nazi got down on his knees and started begging him for mercy to forgive him. And Joseph Berman says, I will forgive you if you confess to everything that you've done. So the Nazi starts confessing. And then in a letter, Berman reflects on this encounter and he says, okay, he started confessing, but how would I know when we got to Z? How would I know when he had confessed to everything that he had done? And you can't know. So that's one of the questions I was really kind of compelled by. And that's kind of where the subtitle comes from. So what ended up with Boris? You said, I mean, did I miss that? Did you say that he ended up working with the KGB afterwards? I mean, like, Boris just seems to be on every side uh, of every kind of like totalitarian regime that you can think of. Yeah, I mean, that's the evidence that we have. He disappeared in 1949. He told my grandmother, who was pregnant at the time, that he was going on a business trip to the city of Silame, which is um, on the north northern Estonian coast. And at the time, it was the site of the Soviet Union's uranium mine. So it was a very strategically important city. It was a closed city, which means that it didn't appear on the maps. 
and that you needed to have a permit to enter and exit. So it's a very mysterious place. It's not a place that you can just go, which of course suggests that something else was going on. He took most of the documents and photographs of himself with him, leaving my grandmother with kind of just scraps and like a few photos that were taken when they were newlyweds, but really not that much. So he just kind of vanished. And then it was, as my father was growing up, he would often encounter people who remembered his father and would say, oh, you know, this or that about him. Um, Or people would say, oh, I heard he showed up in Poland or Belarus or West Germany or South America. That was obviously hard to live with. And so when he could, he just started to find out what he, what could possibly come up in the archives, which it turned out was not much. Intelligence Squared recommends how to lead a sustainable business with Alana Weston. Complete systems change is needed for us to grapple with the enormous challenges that face our planet and the people who live on it. In the latest episode, Alana is joined by Leslie Johnston, CEO of Laudes Foundation, which is reinventing philanthropy by inspiring and challenging industry to harness its power for good. You can't grow your way out of species extinction. You can't grow your way out of environmental destruction. Search your podcast app for how to lead a sustainable business to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Which gives your story a sort of sense of openness and a sense of things that we thought closed, like the Holocaust opening up again. And it's impossible to ignore the context that your book is being being published in, which is this bit of the world is again witnessing uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, claims of intent to genocide. I'm talking, of course, about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and and it, you know, and also sort of mass deportations of people, all this stuff that we thought was closed in European history that we'd worked through that, you know, events like Nuremberg had 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 really put a tombstone over and that we'd really definitively said never again. They seem to be opening up again. And, and I wonder, as is, is you write somewhere in the book, it's not a coincidence that the same region where war crimes are currently being committed is also where the full story of the Holocaust is only now starting to be told. So do you see a connection there between sort of the, the lack of closure that your book suggests or even the return of, of, of some of the demons of history, which it seems to intimate, and, and the sort of the very violent return of the nastiest parts of totalitarian history to, to Eastern Europe? There's just so many levels of heartbreak about what is going on in Ukraine right now. And for me, I keep thinking about Bob and Yarn, not just because I was there in September to report on it, but I'm not sure if listeners will remember, but in the first week of the war in March, one of the Russian missile strikes hit the territory of Bob and Yar. And in this event that I find just catastrophically ironic, the missile burned a museum that was supposed to become a museum to the Holocaust in Eastern Europe to the ground. And for me, that just illustrates the kind of horror of what's going on, because it's taken so many decades to try to make what occurred in Eastern Europe an active part of memory for people who live there, people whose grandparents live there, just to kind of get a sense of actually the facts and to kind of shore it up and make it something that is publicly held, that is collectively held, that is not divisive, that doesn't say, oh, your grandfather was a perpetrator, your grandfather was a victim, you know, that actually says, no, this is part of the land, this is the place where we live, and so we all need to know what occurred here. 
And of course, that's also the reason I think that the Kremlin propaganda, you know, of saying this war is about the denazification of Ukraine. One of the terrible reasons that that can take hold is because there <laughs> is not sufficient education about what actually happened that some people might listen to that and say, yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of just horribly perverse, but also, as you know, Peter, like tactically, they are pushing these pressure points that they know they can exploit. But they're also emptying the term of meaning. You know, the word Nazi, the term fascist, are meant to be these really powerful terms which act almost like dams, historical dams on, on against, you know, the flood of misdeeds. You know, the kind of words that really say, no, 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 this is a line that you do not cross. And there's something about using them so flippantly and so casually that, that cheapens and wears them out. Because we want to scream at, at Putin and say, you're like a fascist or you're like the Nazis. I don't want to get into political science discussion about whether whether they are precisely. But there are some echoes, let, let's say that. Um, and and you want to use that language as a kind of a barrier to stop him. And because he's calling everyone a fascist as a Nazi, the, the word has cheapened and, and disappears and suddenly realize how important language and the associations that that language contains how how much of a bulwark that was and how easily it can be trashed i mean i'd love to get your sense i mean there's two ways of looking at what's happening in ukraine one can see it as the loss of those who pursue totalitarian aims and genocidal aims and that sort of thinking this is their great defeat they thought they could they thought they could raise their banner and swipe all before them. And instead, Ukraine and, and its allies have, have shown that actually this is where it stops. You know, Russia has abused and violated Ukraine repeatedly through the enforced famines, through mass persecutions, arrests, um, the wiping out of the Ukrainian language, on and on and on, century after century. And, and, and there could be a way of saying, no, 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 this, this is where it stops. This is where we hold them accountable for their crimes. And this is where we show physical resistance. Or you could look at it the other way and say, no, 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 this is the return of, of the nastiest parts of history that we never dealt with in Russia. But also, you know, with the reemergence of a, a kind of like flirtation, quite a heavy, not even a flirtation, kind of a heavy petting session that's going on between the Hungarian regime and authoritarianism. Some unsavory tendencies, to put it mildly, in Poland, which has actually been actually a very, very good ally to Ukraine and, and really quite remarkable in the war. But before that, we saw really, really worrying attacks on the rule of law and some very worrying narratives emerging there. So I often just like, row and fight with my, my friends who are experts on the region about whether it is destined to just repeat these patterns because the, the past has never been dealt with. Or quite the opposite, we see in its own way the past being faced up to and moved on from. And, and I wonder, where, where, do you, where do you sit on that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly do not think this is inevitable to repeat and repeat just because these are, quote unquote, the bloodlands does not mean that it's deterministic in any way. And I would, you know, I really believe in a Ukrainian future and I look forward to seeing it being rebuilt. I'm more on the second side. I think that actually what we're seeing right now is Ukrainians are more than ready to face up to this history. And in fact, I think this will be the moment when it's no longer in question. It's so clarifying, you know, and if there ever was a shade of doubt about what World War II meant for Ukraine and how it kind of shaped its future going forward, I think that now we have a very clear narrative. Um, I was really struck by 
this term that I heard in Kiev, which is, you know, Soviet oblivion. And this idea, Soviets suppressed so much of what actually happened in Ukraine during the war because they thought that to commemorate Jewish atrocities would be, you know, somehow come at the expense of Soviet collectivity. And if you think about genocide as a crime of negation, right, as you were saying, this kind of ripping out of history books, this kind of destruction of Ukrainian cultural treasures, to say nothing of the destruction of the Ukrainian people, I think there is a good argument for it being a genocide. I mean, going back to brass tacks, I mean, your book is also about the details, not just the concepts, but also kind of the details and the difficulty of recording crimes and proving them, especially when the, you know, the last survivors and the witnesses have gone. In Ukraine, it can seem like there is an almost an unprecedented level of research into war crimes going on on social media, through journalism. Um, I think, what, 11,000 cases have been opened or something I heard the other day. Is this sort of a totemic moment where the perpetrators of war crimes and crimes against humanity and wars of aggression and the whole language we have from, from Nuremberg, whether, you know, it's a sort of a golden moment for this sort of procedure? I mean, you do get the sense that it is. Um, I do think what the Ukrainian government is doing is kind of opening up these cases and prosecuting where they can. They have a mandate to do that. I also think that, you know, and Sean Walker was commenting on this, the Russian soldiers who are committing these crimes should be held to account for the murders that they have perpetrated. But also, let's try and see if we can get their commanders and the higher ups to actually be held accountable. And I think what will be really interesting, there's no question that right now is a moment when we are reevaluating all the language we have inherited from Nuremberg, crimes of aggression, crimes against humanity, to see how they work in our particular environment today. But also, you know, what we are going to require to, quote unquote, move on. If you look at different kinds of transitional justice initiatives, one of the ones that everyone always brings up is South Africa, where you had this exchange of truth for amnesty, where as long as everyone confessed to what they did, they were allowed to continue their lives. And there you have crimes that have been open, but not prosecuted. And I don't know that that's sufficient. So I think we're in a moment when we're going to have a lot of things coming up, as you said, 11,000 cases, a lot of reinvention, I guess, about what works and what doesn't. I want to just maybe finish on on one on one aspect of that, which is I just got back from Kiev, where I'm leading a big project on on war crimes, um, and how we talk about them, because I think the court of public opinion is very important as well, but also how we bring them to trial in multiple jurisdictions. And something that came up really surprised me, because it's something that I I used to think about but gave up on, which is what is the responsibility of the propagandists? And your book isn't just about propaganda, but but you know. It is about culture and memory and guilt and the role of the, the role of sort of, you know, media and propaganda and books, which make a, play a very important role in, in your book in that. And, and I wonder what you think there. I mean, you observe this region a lot. What do you think is the role of Russian propagandists, Nazi propagandists? Um, do you think they have a case to answer or is the connection between them and war crimes just too tenuous to ever really nail? I mean, what is that balance between freedom of speech and... Um, aiding and abetting war crimes that propagandists should bear? Well, of course, I also want to know what your answer to this question is. One of the most interesting things that I often think about with this question is there's this legal scholar, James Boyd White, and he says, a verdict is never 
really accepted until it's accepted in the court of public opinion. It's important to have the trial. It's important to have these proceedings. It's also important what comes after. And especially in cases with Ukraine, when it's unlikely that all of the perpetrators will be tried, it's unlikely, of course, that the people who are ultimately responsible for launching this war will be tried. The narrative is just as important, if not more so. How do we tell the story of what occurred? How do we prevent it from being manipulated and denied, especially in cases where you aren't allowed to have proceedings, right? Because trials, narratively, they the reason why they capture our imagination is because they do mark endings. And so wherever you do not have them, you have the opportunity for denial to flourish. And so in that sense, I really do think there is a case against the propagandists, but not being kind of a lawyer or an expert on how you would pursue that, I would love to see how it might work. I think it's a question that will take a long time, but I think we have to start thinking it through as a society even before we get we get to the law courts. I think you're quite right. Uh, I think I think the distinction is around legitimizing, justifying is probably not illegal, however despicable it is. I think you'd have to prove that they're aiding and abetting, that they're not actually media in the classical sense, that they are part of military operations that involve war crimes. So to give a small example, there's been a lot of stuff in Russian media that was basically claiming that a maternity hospital in Mariupol was full of far-right battalions. And that was right before the sort of indiscriminate bombing of the maternity hospital. So there, a disinformation operation is used to shape very directly a military operation. And I think if we can show that there's consistent communication between the Russian military, the Russian government and Russian media, then I think you can say that they're aiding and abetting an operation. They're like the, um, you know, in a bank robbery, like, they're like the guy who, who, who drives the car. Um, you know, they're not actually in there, but they're part of it. But you'd, I think you'd have to show that it's operational. Um, I don't think you can just go, oh, they're saying horrible things. I think you have to be, you have to show that it's part of the war of aggression, the war crime, the crime against humanity. Right. Um, and the part yeah. of the erasure, part of the erasure, right? Part of the denial. Yeah, I don't know if den denial is, is, is enough. I think it has to be part of the operation itself because you deny like who, so who's the victim of the denial, you know? So so what they denied and then who's the victim in the denial? So I think it gets complicated. It is very, very complicated. But, but I think especially with Russia where journalists get awards from the Kremlin for their role in military operations, which is what happened after Crimea. The heads of the TV stations got military awards, yeah? Not services to the state, not sort of just general, well done, you're a good you're a good Russian citizen, but military awards where they describe themselves as part of a military effort. I think think that might be a way to go. I think that is quite unprecedented. Linda, an amazing conversation. The book, I don't know, I, I can't praise this book enough. There's a lot of second world books out there and they're all often brilliant and unnecessary. This one is so unique because you put together your own personal emotion without ever ever being self-indulgent but but just that tension i spoke about at the start what is it like having both perpetrators and victims in your family it kind of runs through the whole book and that sort of really gargantuan moral and and um i'm going to use the word spiritual for once this is moral and spiritual effort that, that is behind your very very rigorous and well-told storytelling just gives this book a, a dimension which which i think makes it really one of my very very favorite books not just of the year but of, of the last few years so thank you very very much and i encourage everyone to to dive into it it's a very very rewarding experience thank you so much peter that really means a lot and thank you for this amazing conversation
What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.